Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 99%. Uh, I'm Jesse, and I'm here with Elliot. Are you sure your name is Jesse Elliot? I, I got a little confused for a second. I was like, ah, oh, but I, I'm, I'm sure now. Yeah, it took me a second. <laughs> your name's not hey, Marilyn. It's, That's it's, right. <laughs> we also have Marilyn here. Hey, um, guys. <laughs> I'm Elliot, just so everyone knows. This is what happens when you turn 40. You start losing your mind. I'm already forgetting things. And I three fear, days ago, right? Yeah, it's just gonna get worse. Happy Who birthday, Jesse. And Jesse has more hair than me, and I'm not yet 40, and I'm jealous. <laughs> uh, I got one thing going for me. My my brain is gone, but uh, at least I've got a little bit of hair. <laughs> Uh, anyways, it is a few days before St. George 70.3. I know as we're recording, you're listening to this after, right? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, do you guys have a few athletes racing? Yes. I have a big group yeah. going actually. Awesome. Yes. In the mm -hmm. amateur field. Not, I don't have any pros racing. Yeah. Same here. Same here. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. I'm excited to watch. I love, I love that race course is a little different, but, um, you know, still be a pretty exciting race to, uh, to see how it goes. Um, but the one thing we're going to talk about, about the race is looking at the professional field. It looks like, at least according to like try rating that the top seated males and females all come from a short course background. And I mean, who knows how the race is going to play out, but we've seen a lot of rock stars kind of cross over from short course and crush it at the 70.3 distance. So what makes some short course athletes so good at 70.3s? That's, uh, that's, that's the topic kind of, today, right? Yeah. Theme of the day is what makes that transition and like what, what makes them excel? And then on the flip side, are there instances where that doesn't happen or does every short course athlete become an amazing 70.3 athlete and then an amazing Ironman athlete? I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, we're going to, we're going to find out. Oh, you um, know, I have no idea. I'm so excited. Um, <laughs> before we get into that though, I do want to give a quick shout out to Erica. I know she had a great, uh, last race. I don't know. She was top American, right? Elliot. Oh yes. Erica Agerlin, my girlfriend. I'm very proud of her. She just did you, got, did, when I said Erica, did you not know who I was talking about? You look confused as well. I Are you losing your Erica. mind too? <laughs> no, uh, she was eighth at Carlo Vivarian. As we're recording this, this is before Hamburg. So she gets to do the first WTCS uh, this year, which is on Saturday. It actually starts at the exact same time as St. George, but on the other side of the world. So it should be good. It'll be her fourth, um, fourth World Series start. And um, yeah looking forward to it and hopefully her legs bounce back because Carlo Viver is a pretty tough course. So nice. Very but cool. yeah, another world cup top 10 in the books. Nice. So uh, deep thoughts on, on the men's field at St. George, the top two ranked guys are Gustav and, and Christian. Do you, uh, mm -hmm. do you think those guys are going to go one, two? Personally? No, but I do. I will be shocked if one of them, I mean, you're listening to this after the race. So as they're going one, two, and you're listening to this, calling me a dummy, uh, fair. Um, but I just think that it's still a world championship field. The field is a little watered down for a world championships, but I mean, there's just tons and tons of really strong guys. And I suspect at a minimum, one of them will be in the top two, but I do think there's enough other really good guys that you just can't automatically give it to them personally. 
So I'll be yeah. shocked if both of them are out of the top five. I'll be flabbergasted. Yeah. In, in this course, it could be like, it's hard to predict, right? Because of the conditions and the difficulty of the course. So like based on even this topic that we're talking about today with short course athletes transitioning into long course <clears throat> takes a toll. Some of the things I think we'll dive into a whole nother element when you get on a really difficult world championship course. So, you know, it's, it's hilly, it's hot, and there's all these other elements and it can be really windy in St. George in the fall too. So there's these other elements to a course like this that, maybe traditionally really, really fast short course athletes that we would, you know, rank them up there really high in a world championship 70.3, you throw them on a course like this, and it can certainly change the dynamic and, and play in favor a little bit more to the, the stronger athletes than the fast athletes. And um, not saying that 70 or ITO short course athletes aren't strong. That's part of the topic that we're going to get into, but, um, but yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it really plays out this weekend. I just want you guys all to know, since Erica will never listen to this, she can't do a pull up and she can barely do a push up. So there you go. <laughs> um, uh, I, I also like, um, Daniel, I don't know how to pronounce his last name back Like he was leading this, the spring St. George race before he like found out about his penalty and then pulled the plug on the race. Um, but I think a lot of people are kind of overlooking him. Like he essentially probably would have won the race in the spring. And he's super, super good from the men's side. But anyways. Um, yeah, I mean, he obviously, though, did get a penalty. So who knows what that I, I don't know what that penalty was for. I he seems like a, a, I believe it was blocking, but it might have okay. been. A, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he seems like a, a class act guy. So I'm, I'm going to assume he wasn't drafting. But that I mean, that could have kind of affected his race as well. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it'll be, it'll be fun to watch. And yeah, I think that that's one of the questions I have written down about, about short course racers going long is what happens when a 70.3 gets long. Um, so I'm excited to talk about that, but I do think St. George, even though it's, it is hilly, could be hot is a pretty fast course. So I, I do think that it does favor some of the stronger, like ITU ish guys. Um, but, but we'll see, cause usually you get a tailwind on that course and, in the fall, it might be a little bit different. You might get a, a block headwind and, and that could really, uh, change bike times by, by minutes on that course. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so let's, let's dive into it. What do what do you think? Like, what do you think does aid in, in short course athletes transition? Like, let's look, let's start out with a training standpoint before we get into a racing standpoint. Um, let's talk about maybe some of the training that higher level short course athletes do. And, and I mean, I know we're kind of speculating here besides athletes that we've coached personally, but maybe we've seen some athletes personally and have like a general feel for, for what some of the top people might do and how does that really play out? Well, going over the 70.3 distance, I think one thing and Marilyn, you can piggyback on this as you've trained relatively close quarters with an Olympic champion, um, Nicole Spierig. And in second and sixth and eighth, she's amazing. Um, anyways, the swim, like in, so of course you have to swim faster if you're going to do well at draft legal racing. Um, and so yes, like a third pack ITU swimmer is probably still going to be front pack of a non-draft race. That is true. And in a world championships, maybe they'll be in the second pack. Um, so that's just a pure speed thing. But I think one thing that you really see is you can't mess around with your swim endurance because 
in an, in a draft legal race, you get out of the water and you're sprinting. And if you watch leads this year, you saw Lucy Charles kick everyone's butt in the water and six girls held on, or sorry, five girls held on for absolute dear life and could like, so she wasn't swimming away from everyone and she blew up most of the field, but a good portion of the field was right there. And then they got out of the water and every single girl sprinted by her. And it was like, Hey, welcome to draft legal. Like, this is how we do things. We get done swimming and then we start hauling ass immediately. Um, and so Lucy, obviously one, she's just as fast, if not faster at swimming than all of them. So even with that, she still was put in a really tough spot, um, with the transition and the start of the bike ride. And I think for your, for your long course racers, I think what really that means is all these girls, they were a little slower at swimming than Lucy, but their endurance and their ability to kind of like handle that amount of effort in the water and then still go was just as good, if not better. Um, and I'm actually kind of curious, like Maryland, like in the water perspective, like what did you see from Nicola since she's not exactly known for her swim speed, but she's never that far off. And then she gets going faster than anybody when it comes to the bike. I mean, her swim volume is, is really high, you know, so her swim <laughs> fitness is, is amazing. So for her to some, and I'm only talking from like, this was a very long time ago that I spent a period of time living and training in, in the environment with her. Um, but it was in a period of time, she was training for an Olympics games and she was, uh, she did race 70.3s and win them. And she also did Ironmans and won them. And, um, you know, her swim volume was, was very high. I mean, I think I saw her swim even up to nine times a week at certain points just to be, and that wasn't for obviously 70.3, but that was for, um, being prepared to, be as close in contact with that front pack and ITU racing. So you're not going to get a lot of 70.3 or Ironman athletes swimming, you know, nine times a week. And, um, you know, I, I saw her do that pretty consistently through her builds and, and, um, so yeah, and she's swim, not swimming as, 2k. She's swimming longer. Like, you know, these aren't technique sessions. Exactly. Exactly. So, so really high swim volume for sure. And so what are some other benefits that she's probably gaining from, doing nine swims where probably most of them are, are pretty hard. Right. I mean, that's, that's a huge amount of like aerobic capacity you can build during that, that maybe other athletes can't, can't build quite as well because they're, they don't have that ability. Right. That's, I mean, I think there's a huge amount gained from being able to do that kind of swimming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we all know that, I mean, especially, you know, Jesse, right. From a swim background is that, you know, most swimmers come from a two a day, two a day, seven days a week type swimming just to, even if they're a hundred meter swimmer, a hundred meter sprinter, they're, they're swimming that kind of volume. It's a volume sport and frequency sport. So if you're looking to swim fast, you're going to need to swim a lot. And so for someone who was struggling to make the front pack in ITU, she was going to, she was going to have to swim a lot. And so I can, you know, I can't speak for her and I'm definitely not going to put words in hers or her coach's mouth, but from an outside perspective, just being in the shadows there, it's, um, you know, to swim that fast, she was going to need to swim a lot and she's going to need to swim a lot pretty hard. So, and, and they were constantly fine tuning her technique and different things that they could do to get her into that front swim pack. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't, I, the thing on her mind wasn't swimming in a 70.3 or an Ironman. It was, how am I going to be in that front ITU pack at Olympic games and world championships? And, um, but what it did do is when she jumped into, you saw her jump into these 70.3s and Ironmans, certainly racing 4k open water was going to be not an issue whatsoever. She could 
you know, she could go through that and swim really strong, be competitive, be right at the front of the women's field and hop out and be fresh as a daisy. Cause this was nothing to her compared to her training. It's like quite literally like a moderate, it's like a moderate aerobic day. And it yeah. would be the same thing, you know, Erica's in the same, like before we got on, I was talking, I talked to you guys, how we're literally going to move so she can work with a certain swim coach. Um, not the first time in our lives. And if you threw her into like the handful of non-draft races, she's done, you know, she's swimming a lot faster than what many people like in this field would say, Oh, that girl's a swimmer. And Erica looks at him and she's like, that girl's not a swimmer. Like that girl's mid pack. Like I beat, you know, like the girl who swam on uh, Lucy's feet in Daytona, um, last, last spring, we were looking at results and Erica's like, Oh, I got out of the water next to her in a couple of races. And Erica in her mind is not a good swimmer. Um, but it's just, that's the level. And when you're looking at the ability to get out, I, I think it's really important because a lot of people are obsessed with how fat, like how many Watts can you can put out and, um, and just like your endurance on the bike. And that is amazingly important. Um, but I do think and one of the reasons I put this, this, this was my topic idea, um, which I don't have many of cause I'm not that bright, but, um, <laughs> but the thing was, was just like, as I've hung out around a, a lot of the draft legal U S athletes, it's like, yeah, swimming's kind of a big deal and triathlon starts in the water and you don't really get that vibe. If you hang out at uh, non-draft races, you know, it's like swimming something to get through. And when you're looking at it, Gustav or, um, Christian Blumenfeld or Daniela reef, you know, um, or, or Taylor nib, who's a really nice girl. Um, as they get ready for this world champs, or as you're listening to this, as hopefully probably all of them just meddled, they all can really swim and they take the swim really seriously. Um, so yeah, I have seen short course racers though. Um, back, uh, same thing. I, I, trained with a lot of other athletes outside of that squad so, squad. So in Boulder, where there was a lot of short course athletes that did very well at world championships, they did very well at Olympic games as well, went to several different Olympic games, great swimmers from very strong swim backgrounds. And it, and they didn't do well at 70.3s. I mean, really, yeah. really didn't really. And, and so it's not like a guarantee that, Oh, I put in this kind of swim work and it makes me superior in a 70.3 or an Ironman. So let's just make sure that we, you know, there, there is, as we get into us, into this, that's like not the whole picture. The fact that they, these people swim a lot and that they have really strong swims. I think that that's like something that's super important for a short course in ITU. It makes or breaks the race. If you're not in that front swim pack, you're not going to be in a good position for the overall race. And, um, I think, you know, it'd be interesting if we go through what, what's the difference between the ones that have the ability to do that. Like we're talking about here with the ones that have been successful, but there's, there's been several ITU athletes that I know that have medaled at, you know, top four at Olympic games and medaled at world championships, even won world championships and big, big short course races. And they absolutely tank soon as it got longer. So I think well, that's like pretty interesting. Peter Robertson, one of the mightiest one day racers, the, the sports ever seen. I mean, I can't, he can't ride a bike. Um, no offense. I mean, for a world champion, he can't ride a bike. Right. Um, at no offense. He, he probably was going to be like, what? <laughs> you know, how feisty that guy is. Watch it. <laughs> yeah. That's why he's a multiple time world champion. Uh, he's amazing. And, and he's a world champion in triathlon, but he's not a world champion or even a contender in a long course race. Right. And so like Jesse's kind of brought this up, um, before we were on here, but like, 
Yeah. So you have, you see these athletes, all these athletes that we're seeing who are excelling, all of them are doing like have that swim background and are putting in that volume. And even someone like Gustav, Gustav's actually kind of, he's like at the back of the pack in ITU and he doesn't always make front pack and long course, but he's always within sniffing distance. But I just think basically if you come in with a 90 bike, you're going to get all 90 out of that 90 out of your bike. If you're in, if you have that swim background and if you come in with a 95 bike, but you're smoked from the swim, you might only get 85 out of that 95. And, um, and I think that's one big thing that we can take. And that's why I think if you can ride a bike pretty darn well, um, and your short course and you have that swim background, you end up getting out all of that pretty darn well. So you maybe don't recognize, oh, this person's not an amazing cyclist, but they're pretty darn good. And since they start the bike at the front, they're always there, thereabouts, and they're not losing that much time. Um, so yeah, like technical skills, I guess, into T1, like what's your guys' thoughts kind of on like, as you see, like transitions matter. Um, and then just like regular turns, U-turns and all of that jazz. I guess, let me just take one quick step back. Sorry. One of the, yep. one of the points I was like, uh, making in my head there was that like that you get that giant aerobic capacity in the swim. And mm -hmm. I think that's a little bit more short course, like what people are focused on is, is the swim. And so they spend a lot of time there. Whereas you look at maybe a pure 70.3 athlete, they might spend a little more time on the bike and that might be how they kind of work on their aerobic capacity. And, but you're kind of getting there in two different ways. Right. And yeah, as long, as long as like the other pieces come together, which we'll talk about a little bit more later, you, you still have that aerobic capacity to do a lot of work. And I think that's one of the reasons why they can carry over so well is that they, they have that, right. They're not, they're not gassed at the end of the, of their short course racing because they could go longer because they have been doing a lot of work, right. They're mm -hmm. still training a lot of hours. It just ha so happens to be maybe more swim focused and less say bike focused than a 70.3 athlete might be. I think what some listeners might find interesting from, you know, an outside looking in from an amateur standpoint is, and, and we know this just because we know it from the inside of the professional uh, training standpoint is that a lot of these ITU racers, and we, it's good to put clear numbers on it. They do four hour rides. They do three hour rides. I mean, I, I, I trained and, and worked with Cliff with the ASU group, and these are girls that were going to be racing only sprint distance and they did four hour rides. So, you know, it's important to remember that when we talk about these things, some amateurs might be looking at, Hey, I'm a short course athlete versus long course athlete. And they might in their mind be thinking, Oh, that must mean they only do short intense training, one hour rides, 90 minute rides, two hour rides with a lot of intensity. And I think it's important to clarify that a lot of these elite ITU racers are doing three and four hour rides. They're doing 90 minute runs. They're doing two hour runs. So when it comes to transferring over into 70.3, it's not that big a stretch for them to, to just, you know, make it a little longer or just to touch more volume or really it's a lot of them don't even really have to change their training. The training that they're doing is on a whole, they're going to race a 70.3 really well. And then as they taper down and sharpen for their ITU race season, they, they, some of them drop some of the volume. Some of them don't. I remember Greg Bennett did a 90 minute run every single week, no matter what, when he was even going at his best. So, you know, that's important for people to hear and know when we're talking in terms of volume versus, you know, and someone might think, oh, they must only ever run track sessions or 45 minutes or 30 minute jogs. And it's good to clarify this, these short course guys go pretty long girl guys and gals. I say guys, but I'm, I'm sort of putting a broad paintbrush there. 
ASU superstar Hannah Henry dropped me hard on a long ride this summer without trying. Yeah. But that's not I mean, saying we, much for me, but you know, her and Erica were chatting away as they rode. Yeah, away the, from the, the years I worked with Cliff there, I mean, we did a four-hour ride every single weekend in mm-hmm. their base building period up to the season. Now in the season that got dropped a little bit little bit. Um, but a lot of them still rode up to three hours. But every single Saturday we did a four-hour ride and and these these women were racing, like I say, a sprint distance triathlon. So could you say that some of the stronger ones that were just a little bit stronger on the bike could jump in a 70.3? Yeah, pretty easy. Right. I mean, um, so I just, I, I think that's a key note for people to, to get an inside peek on that. What about the, uh, the harder bike sessions that, that you see, or like think about when you think about like short course athletes? Um, I think that the biggest thing that stands out, um, and then Marilyn, I'm actually really interested since you were, you were around Nicola. Like if you look at the Norwegians, um, and if you look at a lot of the people who are the stronger riders in, in world triathlon, there's just tons of threshold riding. There's a lot of long, steady hill reps. There's a lot, there's a lot of focus on threshold and yes, you're going to do circuits like Maryland actually like did some circuits earlier. That was this year. Right. With like, mm-hmm. and so like I do that with Erica all the time where we're doing like mini crit practice. Right. But we're often doing threshold crit practice. So people think we're like crushing it around the corners. Like you're doing last lap of a crit. And the answer is no, we're doing like three by 15 minutes threshold, but you have a bunch of U-turns and right-hand turns in the middle of it, but it's still a threshold workout. So there's like a variability, but it's not that different than slapping on your TT bars and going, you know, five miles down the road. The difference is we only go four miles down the road because we did a bunch of loops, but like the work is pretty similar as far as like where your heart rate is. Um, but technically it's a little bit different. So I think that's one thing that people, I think maybe not, might not realize there's just a ton of focus on threshold and like, how tired are you going to be after the bike? Cause not that many people even have the ability to ride away. You really have to be at another level, like someone like Taylor Nib. Um, so most of it is like, how can I hold my position, maybe bring my group up to another group and then be ready to run afterwards. Um, so like what Marilyn, what did, like, what did you see a lot from some of those, those Swiss girls? Yeah, pretty similar to what you're saying. I mean, I certainly, witness them doing a little bit higher intensity sessions uh, from, from time to time in, in their builds where it might've been in hill work and, and that kind of thing, shorter reps, higher intensity, certainly mm-hmm. trainer sessions that were quite anaerobic, um, but not but but actually of- were those ever more than like once a week, I like maybe right at the final build, it'd be twice a week, but for most of the year, it's like once or every 10 days or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and most of the riding was fairly, like you say, either threshold based or aerobic based for most of the time. So, you know, the running was quite a bit different, but the, but definitely the riding there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of what you would consider, you know, overdoing in terms, you know, there wasn't like three times a week where you saw them doing absolute anaerobic work three, you know, and really crushing that there was quite a still bit of quite a bit of strength, quite a bit of aerobic stuff, certainly a long ride, that kind of things. Um, some, like I say, some anaerobic work on the trainer or on Hills. I did, I did see that quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's similar to what I see a a ton of. Mm -hmm. And I think the interesting thing, like Jesse, right? Like, is that really all that much different than what you do as a long course guy? Um, you know, no. And I'd say that 
the difference though, is that I do like some longer sessions at like race effort or like kind of a bit mm-hmm. lower, like tempo or whatever. And, you know, it does, it makes you wonder like, well, how important is that? Should I just be doing like you know, more threshold work and, and, and staying a little bit further away from that. But, but yeah, I think that's the one difference that I, I see in like longer course athletes versus short courses, you know, maybe I'll do like four by 30 minutes or something like that. And, um, you know, you don't see that in my mind, you don't see that much like steady state work like that from, um, from short course athletes. And I think that that piece might be different. Yeah. And, and I guess that's a lot of that is because you do more Ironman, but if we're talking like specifically half Ironmans, um, I do think like a half Ironman and an Olympic distance race are really similar in terms of like what you need to be ready for. Right. Yeah. But I would um, say like most 70.3 athletes would, would be doing, you know, some, some longer intervals that are like true un, under threshold. But and, do you think they do that year round? I'm, I'm curious because I don't actually feel like you'd need to do that year round. I do think you need to do that. in your last final build, it might be two months before the race, but I don't know if you need to do it year round. No, no. I'd say that's like probably like race ready training, whereas like athletic development, there's probably no point in doing a ton of that. Um, earlier on in the year, right. You might want to ride like, like a little bit, a little bit easier so that you can ride it for a lot longer amount of time. Instead of like 30 minutes, maybe you can sit on like tempo for like, like a little bit lower tempo for like two or three hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, or a little bit harder where you're like up there at threshold or like even like 105% of threshold or something, but yeah, getting closer to races where you see more athletes doing, you know, whatever four by 30 minutes or two by 45 minutes or these kind of longer longer efforts in the bars that are getting them kind of specifically ready for a 70.3. And I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if, if when short course people tr- transfer over, if they do one or two sessions like that, but definitely not as much, I would say as your like classic 70.3 racer. I have seen a lot of ITU athletes, uh, do, you know, 30 minute TTs, 20 minute TTs, even up to an hour time trial. Uh, nice. so I've seen that pretty often, you know, even in Boulder I used to use, the Jamestown climb, a lot of the IT racers would, you know, I, I trained with Surrey and her group for a little while that had a lot of IT racers back at the, back then. And, and some of the other IT athletes that were in town that weren't part of that squad. And, and really often they would do pick a climb that was 20 to 30 minutes long and, and time trial it. So, and even Nikolai would see her do, you know, a one hour all out time trial, that kind of thing. So that's, you know, definitely different. And it wasn't based on, Oh, what is this of my FTP, blah, blah, blah. It was just like, you're going to do from this point to that point, best possible effort and, and time trial. So that's probably pretty close to threshold work though. Right. Or like just over, like if it's, yeah, yeah, but yeah, you're right. It's in that like a 20 K effort is like what, what, depending on the person, one Oh three to one Oh six percent of threshold. Right. Yeah. So yeah, you're kind of, yeah. Right there. Whereas, whereas again, like, you know, classic 70.3 work might be like, all right, you're going to ride it like around 85% or something like that. Like, like significantly lower than, than threshold. Mm-hmm. I, so one thing I, I think I wanted to bring up, like even before we got into running, um, and run training, Jesse, um, we're talking about you're, you're we're talking about these hard efforts. I don't know why I said specifically Jesse instead of Jesse I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm ready. What's the I feel question? like, I, well, I'm, I'm I feel so like nervous. Marilyn, I feel like Marilyn and I are talking like you're in the corner. Um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but, uh, I have a whole so, room back here. <laughs> so, so, um, but no, 
just racing a really competitive field and no offense to the long course fields, but you don't get 60 people, 50 of whom are probably training full time at every single race. You can go to a continental cup and the person in 27th, they maybe are working a part-time job or like maybe they're still in college, but like everyone kind of has this story and a lot of them don't last that long. But by the time you get into a world cup and then once you're in a WTS, you'll like, people will be like, Oh my goodness, that person has a job. Can you believe that? And you're just coming up against everyone there. This is their job. They're there to kick your butt and like every place matters. Um, and like ranking points and like the difference between 19th and 18th matters. And that's not always the case in some of these, um, 70.3s and Ironmans, just the depth of field. And you really, thank goodness it's not. Yeah. But, (laughs) but I guess what I'm saying is that that kind of like makes your approach to every single race. Like you, you learn really fast. And that's not saying that a long course athlete can't learn all of those things, but I I literally think it takes more reps as a long course athlete because you just don't have someone banging you over the head with it. Um, so I, I don't know. Cause like Jesse in Maryland, you guys both have that experience, but it took you years and years and years. And I feel like sometimes two years on the draft legal circuit and like, you kind of figured it out because you just got your butt kicked and you're like super stoked that you got seventh one time. Um, so anyways, that was just food for thought. And I think the take home for our listener is like seek out competition um, because getting your butt kicked can really help you. Like it helps you expose what you're lacking. Um, and I think that's one thing that when we're talking about, like, why are these athletes better? It's like this race at world championships for a lot of them, they're looking at this field and they're like, well, this isn't the Olympics. Like, do you know who's at the Olympics at like everyone who possibly can make the Olympics is at the Olympics. Um, and so I, I think like that kind of just changes your mentality and that doesn't mean you have to do draft legal to, to get that, but it does mean you need to seek out competition. Um, I think that there's no shortage of people that can kick, kick, butt. I can get my butt kicked a lot of places. Uh, it's not hard to find, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think the, I would also say to that, that like, when you're going longer, it, it does take years, right? Cause it's such an endurance sport. That's why athletes yep. are usually slightly older. So I think there's that aspect. And the other thing too, is that you just can't race a ton of Ironmans in a year. I mean, some 100%. people are starting to disprove that thought now, but I don't know how good it is for their longevity. Whereas short course, I mean, you know, th- you can race every weekend if you live in the right spot. Right. So you get so many more opportunities to, to hone your craft. I think it's cool. I think one of the things that would be interesting to talk about too, is like, is there a mental and physical component in these types of short course athletes that do transfer well over into long course? Cause like I, I keep kind of circling back to is it's not, it's not a guarantee. It's not like, Oh, this person raced short course. So they're going to kill us at 70.3. Cause that's not always the case. We I've seen plenty it's, of yeah, short course athletes. Yeah. I've seen plenty of short course athletes who are absolute killer studs in ITU and short course, and they try to break into long course. I've seen this in running as well, like, um, 5k, well, not 5k, but even up to 5k, like 800 meter runners, 1500 meter runners, 5k runners on the track. And they try and as they get older, move up into the marathon and they, they don't make it. Um, so some do and some don't. And so, uh, you know, what are some physical characteristics and even mental characteristics that, 
are the ones, these IT racers that come over and they are successful at long course. And what's the like glaring difference on the ones that seem to not be able to transfer over? You know, they just, they are like, no, I go short. And that's sort of where, where it ended for, for their career. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think just to start out with like physically, and it's, it's hard. I mean, I don't want to like put a box around like what you have to have physically to make it. Cause this is definitely just like a kind of vast generalization, but it, your wife's going to be so mad after this statement, but uh, carry on. I mean, that's always, always, that's the case. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the athletes that transfer over well tend to be like thicker and like by that, I mean, more strength based. Yeah. More muscular. Like they've got more muscle mass on their body versus People big that glutes. are just, yeah, um, you know, big, big, bigger, stronger athletes. Like you look at Gustav and, or you look at Christian and they're both like they're lean, crazy lean, but they have, they have muscle mass. They're not like tiny little runners. And, and that muscle mass, I think is what, what allows them to ride the bike so well and then run so well and, and really allows them to carry over and, and, and stay strong during the entire 70.3. Whereas, if there's, you know, a very, very slight human that's in an ITU race that they can just hang on for that length of time and they don't have that muscle mass to carry them through a 70.3, but they can run super fast and sit in on the bike. I mean, just for an example, and that, that person might not transfer over quite as well as like someone with, with some girth. Yeah. I think to piggy, you know, extend that a little further, Jesse, some of the things that I've noticed is some of the, the athletes that do transfer well over are, are quite durable. They are able to handle that next step in volume. Whereas some of the, if we're going to say maybe they're a little bit smaller athlete that makes them, you know, like a greyhound across a 10 K when it comes to bumping up just a little bit of volume or a little bit more work capacity, they don't have that same sort of durability to them and they break down. And then ultimately over time, they might be able to do a couple long races, but ultimately over time they break down and they're not able to handle that kind of distance. And, and so I've seen that. And then the other thing that I've noticed is if you put them in a test, it's not the same for all of them and it's certainly trainable, but let's just say we go in a lab and we do a metabolic test and we say, okay, we've got a really, really good long course athlete who's designed towards Ironman racing. Typically that athlete doesn't have a very high top end and the rate that they burn fat as fuel is at a very high percentage of that top end that they work at. So maybe they, their ceiling isn't very high, but they can work forever at nine, 80 to 90% of their, of their top end. And, and they burn fat for just a very, very long time on the really successful short course athletes or more of an anaerobic athlete. They tend to have pretty high VO2 and a really high top end, but that point where they start to burn sugar as fuel is pretty low in their profile. And of course that's trainable through different, you know, different training techniques. And you might look at that as a coach and say, this is, we need to improve their aerobic conditioning, all of these kinds of things. But some athletes, when they're more of an explosive anaerobic type athlete, it's not that, you know, it's, it's got its limit on how much you can train it. Therefore, when they start racing hard and going long, they just, they just end up running out of gas. They can't fuel for how much sugar they burn at that early state in their system to be able to go that long. They just simply at two hours or three hours of racing, start to run out of gas. And, and no matter how much training they do, they, they just end up 
not being able to race at a world level that long. So those would be the two defining things that I notice in short course athletes, the ones that that are able to transfer over, they've got that durability factor and maybe the physical element that we see when we, when you describe that is they're a little bit bigger athlete and they're off season, they bulk up a little bit, they've got a little bit more muscle, that kind of thing. Um, but, but it's really that ability and that work capacity to handle more work for, for extended periods of time. And when I say extended, it's like two, three, four years, that kind of thing. They have stronger tendons and ligaments, stronger joints, stronger, you know, bone tissue, that kind of stuff. And then, like I say, not all, but a lot of them, if you threw them in a lab, that, that metabolic difference is sometimes an indicator on whether they're going to be good at long course or not. I, I mean, Elliot, I know you've got some sports science background. Is there any thoughts on that from you? I, I think you're hundred percent right. I also think if you look at specifically the Olympics, which only happens once every four years, and if you're not a draft legal nerd, you might not recognize the Olympics is interesting because the field is a little bit smaller than your average draft legal race. And it has a handful of people that wouldn't normally be in the highest level races. And so what that means is that normally in a big race, there's like 60 people who are like 60 of the 80 best people in the world. And that in the Olympics, it's more like 40 of the 80 best. And you say, well, why does that matter? Well, that's 50% less people's wheels to get on. And that's 50% less people's feet to swim on. And the people at the front are still the same. And so what you see is in the Olympics in particular, if you can't swim at that highest level, you then have to ride at this highest level and there's less places to hide And Olympic after Olympic, after Olympic, you tend to see the people who fill through the ranks, they all actually have better endurance than the typical every race you see like eight times a year, or 12 times a year. And that's specific to the Olympics, which is why you see someone like Jan Ferdano win the Olympics, but kind of not do that well at most of the other races. Like if you look through his career, it's like, it's not very impressive on the ITU side. If you take out the Olympics, right. Um, I mean, he was a full-on pro, one of the best, but he was not, no one would have ever considered him the best outside of that one race. But then he showed up on that one race and you see that. And like someone like Nicola, she shows up and she can just take advantage and she just is relentless. And then it's clear she has the most endurance and she's just going to continue to pass or continue to compete. And when she won, she didn't win because she was the fastest. She won because she slowed down the least. And, I, and granted, it was an amazing sprint finish at the end. But I mean, she also went head to head with Gwen Jorgensen, who was like, she's that greyhound you're talking about who, I mean, she, and, you know, she would, there's a reason she doesn't do draft legal. She wouldn't win. <laughs> like she wouldn't get fifth. Um, but Nicola, she can just sit there and pull all day. And then Gwen holding onto her wheel for dear life can, you know, she ran away and beat her but it wasn't easy. Um, and so I think when you look at the Olympics specifically, you see these people, like if someone got seventh in the Olympics, like Daniela reef, most people are like, Oh, that person got seventh. And normally they don't even get in the top 10 and then they show up and they start killing people. You're like, Oh, they got seventh in that race. Oh, that means they have some endurance, like some serious deep seated endurance that took years and years to build. Um, so I think your point's super well-made. And if you look at like your average world cup or your average um, world series race, you might not always see that, but in the Olympics in particular, I think you see it on the, um, on the mental side, I see that kind of connected to the physical in a, in a lot of ways. Um, 
Good point, Elliot. Sorry. I was just going to transfer over to our next question. No, no, no. Yeah, go for question. it. Um, and I, I think that it's like, if you ask someone like, hey, do you want to go on a five-hour adventure ride? Mm-hmm. And if they're like, yeah, that sounds like fun. Usually they're in that camp of like having like a, a slightly lower VO2 max and like slightly um, like a, like higher aerobic capacity or whatever you, you want to call that. And, and so they're naturally better at going for like a five-hour adventure ride than that other person who like doesn't ever want to do a 70.3 and probably wouldn't be good at it. So like, it's like, you like what you're good at, right? So mentally you're like, oh, that sounds like fun. That might mean you'd be a good candidate to transfer over to 70.3. You're also good at what you like, but yeah. uh, Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. So Um, interestingly enough, Jesse, on your point there, I remember, uh, hopefully she won't mind me mentioning her name, but I had, I did a little bit of training in Boulder with Laura Bennett for a period of time and she was on fire. I mean, she was one of the best on the ITU circuit and, and her and her and Greg, they decided they wanted to, you know, fourth at the Olympics, that kind of thing. She'd been to a couple of Olympics. She wanted to try uh, 70.3 and she was pretty good at 70.3 as well. I mean, not not crushing it, but very good, you know, did very well. If you looked at her results, you would say, dang, this girl's great at this sport. Um, but I remember having conversations with her. She was like, I don't like it. She's like, I'm so bored out there on my bike, time trialing by myself for, you know, 56 miles. And she just was like, she's like, just not for me. She's like, I'm so bored. Like I just, she mentally, she was like, I don't like those races. And people would ask her all the time, are you going to race this 70.3, that 70.3? And she was like, no, it's so boring. Um, and so she just really never, I don't think she ever really just went like, I think she did a couple world championships. I don't, I don't know. I'm probably quoting that wrong. So forgive me if I've got that wrong, Laura, but uh, I know she did well, but she didn't do, you know, the type of racer she was in ITU who was absolutely phenomenal. But um she just, I remember those conversations clear as day. She just thought it was so boring. She was like, I am not going to be doing very many of these or for very long. Cause it just was not her, was not her jam at all. And, and when she would be asked about an Ironman, I don't know if she ever actually did an Ironman or not, but I remember her reaction was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like that is so long to be out there on your bike by yourself. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> so yeah. to your point, that was, you know, a pretty good, that was a living example of that exact conversation. Well, and so Erica, not anytime soon, but like she totally would, would race long course, you know? Um, and some of some people she've trained with and been around, you know, Erica likes those long five hour rides and, you know, has asked some people that she trains and races against like, Oh, would you do this? And then she kind of always comes back and immediately is like, Oh, that person thinks five hour rides are dumb. So you're like, Oh, well, they'll never do long course. Exactly. And like, that's exactly the conversation she has. It's like, oh, it's the off season. Would you want to do this like gravel cross ride? It sounds really fun. Oh, it might take most of the day, but like, we'll just be out there a while. And it's like pretty much lines up. If people are like, that sounds fun. Yeah. They probably want to do long course or at least they're interested by it. Um, and if they don't want to do that, when they do get into long course, it doesn't tend to last very long and that's fine, you know, because like, you know, in, in many ways, the Olympics is the, is the pinnacle of the sport. And, and a lot of these people are um, really focusing on that, but I think you're right. There's a ton of people in the Olympics who you'd be surprised at how badly they do, even at an age group, half Ironman. There are people in the Olympics who I, I know would like lose to some of my age group athletes who are in school. And then there's other ones who would beat that same person by 90 minutes. And you're like, what? And they're running side by side. And you're like, look, that's, it's just how the sport works. It's weird and wild. 
but it's it, pretty cool. The crazy thing to me about that is, is that these are the same people that are swimming six, seven K at once, just staring at a black line for like two plus hours, but like, they don't want to go for a ride outside for like five hours. And I mean, that's, I'm clearly geared towards long course. So that's how my head works, but I just, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a funny thing. Um, this is good. Your college swim coach is not on this one. <laughs> she would not be happy to hear that, Jesse. Yeah, that's fair. But, um, but yeah, I, I do think there, there is a mental component where you probably need to enjoy some solo time, uh, or else you're not going to like long course racing and, or training. And I think all the, I think, yeah, that's really interesting. I think like, that's just a good takeaway though. If you're like listening to this, we were talking about like, Oh, you know, this person might be good at this and this person might be good at that. Like you should just do what you like. If you want to do an Ironman and you're a slight build and people say, Oh, you might be better at whatever, like just do what you want to do. And then you can figure it out from there. Cause nobody's ever happy for a long period of time doing what they don't want to do, you know? Um, and there's reasons to train for a short course race as you get better for a long course. But if the whole reason you're getting out the door is because you're obsessed with Ironman, well, you should probably just do Ironman. You were saying before you said like Sam Long did an Ironman when he was 18. Yeah, that sounds kind of dumb, but like, it sounds like, I don't know the guy, but you've trained with him a bit, right? Um, mostly behind him, but, but yes. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but still like on the same rides, you know, you can smell his farts. And, um, but the point is that the dude likes to go long and like, so why would he do something different? Right. And if you just keep doing what you love, eventually that's gonna, that's gonna be a good thing almost always. And maybe you need a tweak here or there, but if you continually do what you love, you're going to get, get better at it. As long as you kind of avoid getting injured and listen to all of our other podcasts. <laughs> Um, yeah, the other thing I guess I wanted to talk about a little bit is I feel like there are kind of like two camps in 70.3 training, like the Ironman athlete who does some 70.3s and then like that Olympic distance and, or 70.3 athlete that kind of lives in that realm. And I feel like the approach is, it's almost like slightly different from each camp, which you come from, um, like I would say Ironman athletes would be like, oh, you have to do an over-distance run to get ready for a 70.3. Like you've got to be still running 16, 18 miles or else you're not going to be ready. Whereas like an ITU athlete that's go like let's say we're talking about those athletes that are probably going to do well, like maybe they don't run over 13 miles. Maybe they do some pretty hard 10 or 12 mile runs. And and um or I mean, or maybe they do. I know you guys are using some examples of people that do two-hour runs to get ready, but but I know you can, you can look at the Norwegians training on Strava. They don't do super long runs. They do super long track workouts. You know, you're looking at 12, 14 K of threshold. Um, that's insane, but their actual long run. It's often very slow on super hilly terrain. Like it's not actually slow because it's hilly, you know, but like they're running like regularly, you'll look at their Strava and it'll be like 10 30 per mile. And you look at the terrain, you're like, well, that's not an easy 10 30, but, um, they're not doing two hours on the road. Like you would like on the river pass and path in Tucson, where you're just knocking out 19 miles in two hours. And like what 12 to 14 K is like eight miles of, of track, which I feel like would be a, That's lot, a lot, a lot for most athletes. Yep. Mm -hmm. It adds up. That makes you strong. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, the biggest thing is that a lot of Ironman athletes, if they truly just come from Ironman, they've never raced IT at all. They're just, I, Hey, I do Ironman racing and 70.3 and 70.3 is their shorter race. The most common denominator with that, that athlete is that they don't have that top end speed, right? So they're working from like, they've got this huge base and they run, they race really, really long. And like I was talking about before, they can, they can work at a high percentage of what they can do for a long period of time. So for the guys like eight, eight, eight and a half hours, they can work at 80% of their capacity for eight and a half hours and, and be really strong at the end. They don't really break down. So they're very durable. They burn fat for a long time. They, they can go medium they can handle i mean the the racing in long course is quite dynamic as well but it's not going to be quite as anaerobic or as explosive so but they can go for a really really long time in terms of like even digesting the amount of calories that they're going to need to do to to race that long and that aggressively whereas a short course athlete if they're coming from that background they're they're working from it's more like traditional like track development right if someone's when they start younger, they're, you know, maybe they're an 800 meter runner and they do that for a long time. And then they're, you know, 1500 meter runner for a long time. And then maybe they jump up onto the 5k and 10k on the road or something like that and, and build up to the Ironman or the, the marathon as they get older. Maybe they don't end up having that kind of durability or endurance. And that is where it ends. And maybe they do, and they become a great marathon runner or like we were talking about in short course, maybe there's someone who grows up in the sport. They race short course. And they show that they have the strength later on in their development to, to race a little longer. So I think, you know, it just depends what, you know, the camp that you come from depends on, you know, what it is that you're doing. And a lot of those Ironman athletes, they just don't have that speed. And they certainly, a lot of times, it's not all of them. Some of them come from swim backgrounds, but a lot of them don't typically have the, the swim speed. So when we look at a 70.3 course, like we're talking about the one this weekend, you know, St. George how's this going to play out? Is it going to be tactical and fast or is it going to be strong and, and sort of one of those ones where someone who is more, you know, patient and can race their own race and can handle conditions really well, are they going to do better? I'm getting, I guess we're going to find out. And like we said, after this, people are going to be listening to this after the fact. So you know, it could go either way if it's depends on what type of course it is. I remember when it was in Clearwater, it was like an ITU type racers course, right? I mean, if you were in that front swim pack and you could, it was flat and fast and a lot of corners, and then it became a foot race on the run, the ITU racers were going to do better. Of course, like St. George, maybe some of those Ironman athletes that aren't quite as tactical, maybe they're a little bit further back on the swim, but they're really, really strong on the bike and they race their own race. They don't get caught up in the dynamics and it doesn't hurt them in the heat that much. Um, and later on, when it gets really hot and hard on a hilly run, they have that kind of strength to actually tick off one of those ITU racers that ends up walking because they blew themselves up. So I think it's interesting. Uh, and, and it depends on the course, what camp you come from on how you're going to do. I, I don't know. That's just like some thoughts. That's obviously like a lot of random, just little tidbits more than more than like actual. This is exactly how it goes. Every race is different. Yeah, every race is different. What do you think? Oh, I mean, I just find it, it interesting how it's, you know, the, the training is flipped on its head either way, right? You talk about coming in from a super fast background and stretching it out versus the Ironman athlete who is coming from like the super long background and then trying to like sharpen and actually gain some speed. Um, I, I just find that those two different, like, um, yeah, two different approaches that like you see some athletes do that within a season, or you can see that 
throughout a career. But I, yeah, I find that the two different uh, ways to shape that interesting and in, in how it works and how you can kind of end up in the same spot um, based on kind of where you started. Yeah. And, but I think a lot of that is like, we're talking about a half Ironman and the moment you get into an Ironman, like you were talking about earlier, Jesse, like there's these four by 30 minute kind of workouts. Like you just, you're not going to do well at an Ironman unless you're truly one of the five or 10 best short course athletes in the world. Um, you're not going to do well at an Ironman doing your short course training, right? Like Nicola Spirig well, because she's like, was literally the best short course athlete in the world. <laughs> you and know? she trains a lot. Let's just say, I mean, let's just, and, and, and has for, she trains dec- a lot. decades in. So she's, yeah. So like she doesn't have to change much and she can go win an Ironman. But if you're looking at someone who got 13th in the Olympics, like they're probably going to actually have to make a pretty big change. I mean, Lisa Norton got second in the Olympics and she's transferred super well. She's always been, I mean, she races her bike professionally. You couldn't ask for a better background. Um, and it still like took a little bit of time in terms of trying to change her training, um, to get good at long course. And of course she's done it successfully. Um, but it didn't happen overnight, I guess is my point. And you couldn't ask for a better background, someone who's like literally the Olympic silver medalist. So she, you know, she can swim and run. Oh, she's also the time trial national champion of Sweden. You're like, oh, well, she's going to kill everyone. Nope. Still took a little bit of time. Um, and so you like for that Ironman stuff. And so I think you do need to keep that in mind. Like most of what we're talking about is the transfer to whatever you want to call it. The meet, the middle distance, 70.3 half Ironman. Um, and if you're going to do the long stuff, like you're probably going to fully make that switch. So. Awesome. I don't know. I feel like, uh, ending on a little switch full making of the switch to Ironman is a, is a pretty good place. I don't know. Do you guys have any other topics we didn't hit yet that you wanted to, to chat about? No, I don't, I think probably the last thing that we could probably just summarize is that, and, and Elliot touched on a little bit is that, um, you know, some of, sometimes the amount of racing that you get to do as a short course athlete. And you said that too, Jesse, is that a lot of these short course athletes get to race every weekend for their season. And so the number of times they get to toe the line and, you know, racing, racing well takes practice. And so if you come from a long course background and you're typically an Ironman athlete going into 70.3, you might only race, let's say you race six to eight times a year you know, between your half Ironmans and your Ironmans, and that's a full-time pro athlete. And that's just, you know, I guess on, on maybe someone who has a pretty big race calendar, really even. Um, and then a short course athlete might race, you know, 20, 30 times a year within their season. So, and that's, you know, so the number of times that they get exposed to a race environment and understanding like tactics and how hard they can go and those kinds of things, they get a lot of practice at that. And I think there is, there is some value in that and why that transfers over well into some of these bigger events, like a 70.3 world championships or some of the competitive 70.3. So, you know, I think, I think that's something to, to look at as well. So just out of curiosity, would you guys advocate for athletes who, even though they focus on Ironman to jump into some smaller races, to get, to get a chance to practice racing more than if you're an amateur mate, more than three times a year. I do. I, I have yeah. all my athletes race as like low, as many C short course races as possible for that exact reason. I'm like racing takes practice and, um, learning to go hard takes practice. And so 
100%. Absolutely. I think, yeah. I think Marilyn and I and I's philosophy, cause like we didn't really know each other before this podcast. Right. Um, and I think like both our answers to that question, the immediate, yes, of course, like racing is a skill. And like, I think it was, I don't know, but like however many podcasts, 40 some podcasts ago, it was like, oh yeah. Okay. I'm going to get along with her. Like, you know, like is the, it's the speed that you answered yes to that. And the, like the, the point where you're like, oh, it never hurts to put a number on, you know, like, and, um, and, and so I think, yes. And, and then a little bit, I also think like the travel skills really matter. Um, and so like so much of that is learning to race in the race, but so much of that is handling the build up to it. And I, I'll be interested to see, cause if you look at some of the training, like particularly that the two Norwegian guys are doing, that's up on Strava, like most people think they're blowing their wad. They're like, they're doing what eight days before the race. And you're like, well, you know, if you're going to race 14 times in a year, you can't do a two week taper for all of it, or you'll just be fat, you know? So like, you got to keep moving. Um, and they've got goals for after this race and they're like, yeah, well, we're going to be rested. We're going to be ready to go, but we kind of know just how little rest we can get away with. And then they still have confidence heading into that. And they kind of just know the ebb and flow. Um, so I think that's really important as well. And so, yeah, I think that's one thing that just towing the line and knowing like what you can get away with and still have a full hundred percent effort. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I threw you too What's much your answer. Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're, you're <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We I mean, I've known. Yeah. Well, I, three. yeah, I, uh, I mean, even personally, that's why I do a bunch of the small local races just to make sure I remember how to race. And like, I just did like the Suaro eight mile running race, even though mm -hmm. it's just a running race, it's still like, still good practice racing. Like, you know, waking up early, eating breakfast, pooping six times, getting to the race start, <laughs> all the important things. <laughs> you didn't break the rule of seven. So you're good. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a rule. So I'm glad I'm okay. Here's the rule. For everyone listening, I swear a real doctor told me this. Um, if you go more than seven times in a day, you might have a problem. If you go less than every seven days, you might have a problem. So if you go every <laughs> if you go every Sunday at four p.m., apparently that's fine. I mean, that's one doctor's opinion, but I just want you all to know that's that. A I'll I don't know. That's a spread. <laughs> that's what I said. Yeah, I said once every seven days. In the world. I can't imagine only going to the bathroom once every seven days. That's terrible. <laughs> that's it feels well, anyways, like this I, conversation is, is, is going the wrong direction. It's about to go sideways. I really appreciate you guys spending the hour with me. It was great to catch <laughs> up. And uh, yeah, um, it, it, always interesting to talk about training and how it looks different for uh, different types of athletes. Let's just get, get out of that conversation right now. <laughs> get there out of go. here before we talk about too much poop. Thanks guys. Super fun. Cheers. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye.